1863, the black uh, uh, congregants of First Baptist Church petitioned for the establishment of their own church. And so we see the migration between 1863 and 1865, the establishment of the first holy black um, uh, Baptist church in Charlottesville, and that's First Baptist Church. Not that building, but that site. Um, what's a little surprising about that, there's more than 100 individuals that are, that are um, um, moving to establish that uh, congregation it, within months of the conclusion of the Civil War, right? And so there is a, there's an, um, a kind of commitment to the establishment of, of, of black institutionalism and black identity within months of the, of the echoes uh, of the Civil War, which is really sort of astonishing. It is also um, the aggregating of the formerly free black community. And so here we have to st step back just briefly to recognize that African Americans um, in uh, Charlottesville and most other cities uh, in this period, in all other cities in the South in this period, are divided between the enslaved and the free. There has been, over the 19th century, the growth of a free black community. Those individuals who have been able to use the generation of wealth to then purchase their own children out of the institution of slavery and give them an identity as a free person, a free person of color, right? So that by the time of the Civil War, particularly urban centers have these populations of free people of color. That community of free people of color then has, they already have uh, some established wealth, right? Uh, and they have the capacity to band together to establish this, uh, this church. Now, it is not at all an accident that the location of that church is right on Main Street. Okay? The major public thoroughfare through the city of Charlottesville. They're claiming a space in the public square. They're planting their flag as a black institution in the landscape of the city. That's a courageous move. And that courage comes from the promise of Reconstruction. Right? At the end of the Civil War, there is this season that we don't tend to talk a whole lot about, which is the political reconstruction of the South. Uh, the forced... Um, enfranchisement of African Americans, their defense to the right of the vote, and this results in this season of the, particularly the, 17, the 1870s, of black presence in legislative bodies. This is a really important factor for us to recognize. The House of Delegates in the state of Virginia and the con both con parties of Congress have black representation. African Americans are elected to Congress and to the House of Delegates. And they're being drawn largely from this established free black population. Individuals who have been educated, who have begun to develop wealth, right? Um, but by the 1880s, that's no longer true. There's a profound difference between the 1870s and the 1880s in terms of the racial inclusion of our governing bodies. What is that? It's the collapse of Reconstruction in the Compromise of 1877. 
The Compromise of 1877 brought Rutherford B. Hayes, a Republican, into the White House. Now, we have to, have to recognize the Republicans are actually the racial progressives in this moment, right? So Rutherford B. Hayes is brought into the White House, but it's a hotly contested presidential election, and so there has to be a compromise for that conclusion. So Rutherford B. Hayes, a progressive, gets the White House, but what the Democrats get is the withdrawal of federal troops from across the American South. The reason African Americans are enfranchised in this season is because the federal government has made a military and a political commitment to ensure that enfranchisement, and that is what we call Reconstruction. Reconstruction ends with the Compromise of 1877. And so the progressives get the White House, but the Democrats get full authority back over the South. That's a really, really important moment in Charlottesville's racial history. So that when a second congregation is established, Ebenezer, it's built here. Right? Firmly ensconced in the heart of Star Hill neighborhood, which is the middle-class black neighborhood. Right? African Americans have been forcibly, they've withdrawn because of disenfranchisement. They've withdrawn from the public sphere of the main street, right? That retreat, that retreat has everything to do with the failure of the federal government to ensure the protection of their enfranchisement. And so we see this season then between the eight, uh, from 1877, the 1880s, into the 1920s, which is exactly the season that we've been talking about with race riots, right? Wrongly called, wrongly named race riots, lynching, Systemic disenfranchisement, eugenics. Middle-class African-Americans begin building a deep infrastructure of their own neighborhoods. And that's what Star Hill is. Star Hill, the neighborhood behind me, emerges in this period as the safe space for middle-class African-Americans. Uh, you also begin to see the rise of certain institutions. And we're going to talk about three or maybe even four uh, here in Star Hill. The first we're going to talk about is this funeral home, Bell's Funeral Home. Bell's Funeral Home is established, as the sign says, in 18, uh, 1917. The, the work of the mortician and the undertaker takes on significant, significant importance in the late Victorian period. Why? Because families, white and black, but primarily white families, are no longer interested in managing the corpse of a deceased loved one. That happens commonly, right? Families manage their own dead in the 18th and the first half of the 19th century. But with the increasing sensibilities and the changing social mores of the Victorian age, we actually want to professionalize that, right? So grandma dies. Grandma might still die in the living room. Mm, I'm not so sure that I want to manage that. The funeral parlor emerges in this period as a professional opportunity. African Americans step into that opportunity in high numbers, such that if you're traveling to another city and you don't have the green guide, or the green guide is, has failed you, you can almost always depend on the funeral parlor as a safe haven, because they're usually, certainly in southern contexts, they're usually African American managed, right? So the bells build up, and this is actually the building that's built in the 1817, 
1917. Uh, the Belds built up this um, commercial enterprise of undertaking. It's not an accident that it's on the edge of Star Hill, right? It's on the, it's, it's on the space that's between the black and white zones of the city uh, in the 19-teens, right? They're, they're having to engage quite robustly with uh, Charlottesville's white population because that's a primary user of their, of their services. Uh, Raymond Bell, in the middle of the 20th century, would be one of the co-founders of the NAACP here in Charlottesville. And Raymond Bell would also be the very first African-American on Charlottesville city school system. And so because of their, um, uh, their social capital uh, in the city, of course, they're going, uh, I don't know which church they go to, right? but there's these two African-American churches that are really important. They're certainly attending one of those churches. They're an anchor of this community, right? And, so the, uh, and, they, and they remain that way. And so uh, Bell's Funeral Home uh, sort of reminds us of the agency of African-Americans to find cracks in the system, to exploit those cracks as a way of uh, sustaining themselves in, this, in the kind of context of what everything else is going on in the early 20th century in, uh, in Charlottesville and all other cities. Let's keep going. Uh, 